What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Vast Podcast. What's up? What's up, Jake? How are you? I'm good. Good. We uh, just got done um, with just such a inspiring. Yeah, really great conversation with a man named Strawn. 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 I said it like a classic Texan, Strahan. You call him Strahan. Hey, Strahan. Strahan. <laughs> Strawn Coleman. Uh, also uh, known as Commoners Communion. Yeah, on Instagram. He is in New Zealand mm-hmm. and has an uh, amazing story, uh, journey through uh, a lot of health stuff um, and some really, really great reflections upon uh, a life of prayer, mm-hmm. abiding in Christ, the mm-hmm. Eucharist, mm-hmm. the future of the church. Yeah, we talk uh, contemplation, mm-hmm. contemplative spirituality, contemplative classic prayer, prayer, classic Pentecostalism, yeah. uh, and then how those two can be melded together. Such a great um, conversation. And his vision for the future of church is just amazing, and also just so practical for all of us as mm-hmm. we're as we're walking out this life as disciples of Jesus. So, hey, before we jump into this conversation, um, follow us on Instagram, uh, vast.faith. You can go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, uh, which is www.vast.faith. And then again, every t- every single time we remind you, do us a favor, uh, rate the show, uh, like it if it's on YouTube, share it around, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. Uh, it helps so much in getting the word out there. And uh, all right, well, that's enough from us. Let's jump into this conversation with... Strawn. Strawn. Coleman. Coleman. God bless you guys. Love you. here with Strawn. Did I say that right? I think you got to go like Strawn. 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 Coleman. pretty good. Um, Strawn. <laughs> Strawn. You, you can't say it like that with an American accent. I know. Yeah. I know. I just, I'm like pronunciating. <laughs> My pronunciations are just Strawn. Strawn. Is, is coming to us from New Zealand. Um, New Zealand. And man, you are a a musician, a writer. You run the Instagram account, or you are the Instagram account, Commoners Communion. What, like, how would you, uh, if you had to define, you know, what it is that what it is that you you do? Oh my goodness, um, that's a really horrible question. I don't honestly. I'd probably say <laughs> I'm a praying person that expresses my thinking, philosophy, experience, artistically. That's probably the best way I put it. Uh, really, my, mm-hmm. my music and my communist communion and my writing, it's all centered around a prayerful experience of God. Um, but it seems to shift all the time with me just in the expression. So uh, mm. music is what I did for 10 years. Now I predominantly write with my fingertips on a keyboard uh, or in a design app. But the heart's the same, connection with God, intimacy with God, and helping people share in that with me. Wow. When did that journey begin for you? Well, actually, um, I I started writing songs when I was seven, eight. So pretty much from my earliest days, I wanted to be Michael Jackson because who doesn't when they're seven or eight years old? That was He was my kind of <laughs> <Right>. hero. <laughs> Uh, but I had an I had an experience really at um, at an Easter camp down here. Must have been about the late 1990s, so I would have been about 13 years old. And an American, actually, American visiting speaker had come, and he was a prophetic person. And he made the statement at the start. He said, "Tonight, I re- I believe God's brought me here to help people see what God is going to do." in their lives to kind of commission them into the purposes of their lives. Uh, And I had a deep sense that that would be um, me. And so at the end of it, kind of had that feeling in my stomach you get when someone's, you know, they're doing the altar call and, you know, it literally was Mm a, you know, an outdoor tent with dust just everywhere. So it was like a proper, (laughs) you know, dusty Pentecostal Mm -hmm. altar call. Um, And, Went up the front and in that moment just had an experience of, of Jesus, a vision of Jesus and his love, and it really shook me to my core. And I felt him say, Strawn, I want you to share the gospel and play music throughout the world. And wow. I w- it was a powerful experience for me. I shook. I shook for about an hour. And actually my my family was there with me, had to carry me back to my tent. And that that sort of became a very, very formative event in my life that – Essentially, I've I've lived out now for 
over 20 years. Um, and, and so I think that that sense of my, my living purpose is to bring the gospel into places. What, what I've understood of that has changed over time, what that means, but that central purpose has, has never left. Wow. And have you always been a deeply prayerful person? I've always been magnetized to experience of, to the experience of God. I think faith and, and Christianity for me has always been experiential. Um, I think that prayer, um, well, I guess it, it depends on if I if I was to define prayer, I would say prayer is living life in view of and in communion with God. So in that mm-hmm. sense, if I'm thinking about being seated in Jesus and then experiencing the world outside of me in that sort of experiential abiding way, prayer has been the whole game for me ever since I came to faith mm-hmm. as an early teenager. Um, and again, when I sort of had my Pentecostal renewal in my early 20s, uh, prayer as a classic, like as we generally think about it, getting in a room and pounding it out, not always been my strength, but you know, especially from my early twenties, my hunger to to see God and to experience Him kind of really did lead me into quite intense seasons of prayer. Um, and I think that as as I came through my twenties and grew up and matured into that, my desire to language that and transform what what we mean when we say prayer has grown with it. So, mm-hmm. a bit of a long answer to a simple question, but I think prayer is one yeah. of those loaded words these days where. Lots of assumption, not a lot of definition around what it means. Love the way you define that, mm-hmm. a life in view of and in communion with God mm-hmm. so that you mm-hmm. can f- fulfill something like, I guess, what Paul means when he says to pray without ceasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you think about something like praying without ceasing. If prayer is conscious mental dialogue, which is what we often mm-hmm. think it is, you know, like thinking thoughts mm-hmm. verbally toward God, then praying without ceasing is impossible. I mean, just purely mm-hmm. by the fact that we need to sleep. Uh, but if there's mm-hmm. something more mystical about that, if there's something more deeper, more intercessory, more, you know, I am a, a resurrected new, new, like literally a new existing creature in which I'm inside the Trinity and I'm participating in Trinitarian prayer uh, and, and my role is to kind of lean into an experience and then bring that back out to the world in all its shapes and forms, then unceasing prayer becomes quite an adventure and not like a crazy burden. You know, how do I do that? Um, and so I think that idea of conscious mental dialogue can restrict us sometimes from deeper experiences of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so true. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what you mean by Trinitarian prayer? Um, maybe that's a term that is kind of, lost on some of our listeners. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of lost on me too. It's a big statement, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess it, in some sense, I mean, it should I be lost tri- on all of us. <laughs> Sorry, you go. I, I just said, I think in some sense, it, it's a statement that should be lost on all of us. Yeah. <laughs> to engage with the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. man, totally. Uh, when I think of Trinitarian prayer, man, I think, I think, I mean, the gospel is this. God became a human being, not just temporarily, but permanently. God and Christ is not just sort of half God, half man. He is all Mm -hmm. God, all man. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that's possible. Definitely in the mystery box for me, but it's true. Mm -hmm. So that we may, in our humanity, find ourselves in Christ's humanity and so that God's divinity may find himself in ourselves as well. That doesn't mean we become divine, but it means that we are now indwelt by the divine in the same way that Jesus mm-hmm. is. So we have God within us. And not only that, but Ephesians says that we are raised up and seated in Christ in heavenly places. So in some mysterious way, you and I are actually participating in the heavenly realm, seated in Christ through the Holy Spirit, which means that we are in Christ inside the community of God, Father, Spirit, Son, so that when we pray or, you know, as First Corinthians talks about, 
or as it Romans talks about, when we don't know what to pray, the spirit groans within us mm-hmm. um, with, yeah, with intercession. Mm-hmm. In other words, we are so placed within the Father, Spirit, and Son that even when we are asleep or unconscious to God, the Holy Spirit within us is uh, communing with God the Father through the Son and the Son through the Father by the Holy Spirit. We are seated in that communion. And so that prayer is about acknowledging that Trinitarian process and basically participating in it, saying yes to it, um, leaning into the prayer of the Father, Spirit, and Son that is already active and alive within us and kind of catching us up into it in Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, which is yeah. of such a magnitude that I think if we if we really spent time meditating on that, uh, would would just it, it's mind blowing that that you mm-hmm. and I right now are seated in Christ in heavenly places that this Trinitarian prayer is moving that the Holy Spirit in you is speaking to the Holy Spirit in me, um, mm-hmm. and that there's communion between us not just in a visual, audio, physical, digital way, but there is a communion between you guys and I in the deepest way possible. We are literally of one spirit and our, and the Holy Spirit within us is communicating and, and coming alive in the same way as, um, you know, John the Baptist came alive in the womb of his mother to Jesus in the womb of Mary. That same, that's been playing out ever since Pentecost in the church in, in quite a special way. Beautiful. Um, it's yeah, amazing. There's a great uh, theologian named Fred Sanders. He's a Trinitarian theologian. He has a, a whole bunch of works on the Trinity. Uh, one of them is called The Deep Things of God, I think. And he talks about how Paul refers to the gospel in a few different places as the gospel of God, the good news of God, how the Trinity yeah. in and of uh, himself is good news. Um, and all the good news flows out of the good news that is just the Trinity. Mm. God being yeah. all self-sufficient and containing everything that He's totally self-contained. Yeah. Um, all of the good news flows out of that original good news. And that's beautiful. such a beautiful thing to ponder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be, uh, I was going to say, that would be surprising to a lot of people to hear that God himself is the good news and not heaven or news. salvation or something else mm-hmm. that we kind of, we, we find these lower levels and we elevate them. But to really believe that God is so magnificent in and of himself, such celebrating joy and passion and life and love, say that's the good news. That's that's actually a gospel mm-hmm. for our day, I think. Yeah, and mm. that we get invited into that is mind-blowing. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's really good. I, I want to almost just keep going on that, on that track. But I... Maybe give us, um, you know, you and I chatted, I think it was last week, and we talked all things Pentecostalism, contemplative prayer, liturgy, and and we'll we'll get to that. Yep. And I want to obviously hear your sort of perspective on prayer and the future of church being prayer and all that stuff. But maybe catch us up. I know if you're cool with it, catch us up on like what the last few years have been like for you. It seems like you've walked through some stuff, but it seems like God's done something really deep Um in you. So if you don't mind, would you just kind of give yeah. us a brief overview of kind of what you've walked through the last few years and where that's brought you to now? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think as I kind of reeled into my late twenties, my wife and I had been kind of spending this, having this extraordinary adventure of traveling overseas, foreign countries, playing in bars and clubs and like semi dangerous places, sharing the gospel, praying for people, and really just kind of like, you know, I mean, we would we would jump on a plane. We did a trip to Germany that we jumped on a plane with $100 in our pocket, four nights in L.A. <laughs> off to Germany. We had no idea. We're literally driving to the airport, and we didn't know where we were going to stay in L.A. in Los Angeles when we landed in the 12 hours. We had like a one-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, and then we lived three months through Europe just staying at whoever's house would put us up, you know, basically that day or that night or whatever. So we went from that, we came back, and um, my body just imploded. And we went from living this very outward, expressive kingdom life of, you know, traveling and adventure and miracles and God answering prayer and having stories all the time to uh, me being essentially pretty much bedridden for about two and a half years and no miracles and no kind of, support and economic hardship and uh 
it was a really, really difficult time. And, and in that space, um, my, my body was so broken. I mean, I couldn't watch Netflix, which was the greatest tragedy, right? I mean, I'm sick as, and I can't watch Netflix. I can't read books because I've got brain fog. Um, and I'm lying there 16 hours a day. And all I got to think about is God, where are you? Why have you done this? You know, where's your faithfulness Mm. and trying to have a relationship with God where I'm like, you're not answering my prayers. We can't eat because we don't have enough money to eat. Our phones are getting cut off. My children are sick. Uh, You know, like basically I had people in my life saying, Strawn, I think you're cursed. Like something's happened to you. Someone's cursed you Mm. because it was, I mean, I can't go into the details of the like multi layers of things that were happening. Um, And in that time, God never healed me and he never answered prayer. And that chronic sickness has now extrapolated over seven years now, almost eight years. Uh, But what happened during that time for me was I started going out to this Anglican or Franciscan retreat centers. Franciscans are people who take a special vow after the St. Francis, um, St. Francis of Assisi, who was a pretty radical guy. Uh, and this retreat center was very monastic, so so that my kids didn't see me sick every day because they were kind of coming up to me a couple of times a day saying, Daddy, Daddy, can you play? Um, and I'd say, no, I'm not. I can't. I'm sick. And it got to the point where they would say, wow. they'd say, Dad, can you play? And before I could answer, they'd say, oh, Dad can't play. He's sick. And they would just walk out. And it was breaking my heart. So I went and lay on this bed. And I just stared out a window, basically, for, for two and a half, three years, just existing, uh, existing in the tension of God not healing me and of not answering my prayers, of not living an adventurous kingdom life. And I think in that process, up came this new way of being in, in communion with God, which is why I kind of use the language of communion rather than prayer, that with my body and my mind and creation and silence and solitude became sort of the the gathering, the hospi- like the hospitality table of God. And I was reframed in my thinking from a kind of a working relationship with God where God empowers me so we can get stuff done and we're, we're, we're doing things in the world together to a friendship, which was every day I wake up, I just want to see my God and uh, anything else after that, beautiful but unnecessary. Um, and that was a massive shift for me. And I think that's sort of where Commoners Communion came from was my my desire to express God's intimacy um, and the realms in which the spiritual qualifiers that we usually use um, to qualify a good relationship with God, where that doesn't exist. And I, re- I, I find that in the Beatitudes where God says, blessed is the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Um, in other words, blessed are you strong because you're chronically sick. Your goal is to figure out what that means. And that was sort of that, that's been that journey for me ever since then. Yeah. Wow. Where are things at now with the sickness? Um, not great. I mean, last year I think was probably the worst year I've ever had. I was, I thought I was going to die last year. It was so bad. It was really, really severe. Um, and my body's just sort of chugging along with fatigue and brain fog these days. But um yeah, it's been better, man. But that's sort of part of the reality of the ongoing journey, I guess. Yeah. And doctors don't know what's wrong. No. No, they can't figure it out. They've wow. tested me, all kinds of stuff. I've sent tested Germany and America and Australia and they can they can find the symptoms but they can't find the cause. Yeah. Wow. Man. Yeah. What would um so maybe talk to us about, you know, you sort of mentioned earlier, this sort of radical encounter, you know, with God that you had, um, this sort of like Pentecostal experience. You talked about all of these things that you did for God. How has, and, and then obviously walking through what you're walking through now, which is not just, um, you know, no healing, but also no answers, right? No clarity. Mm. Um, mm. What would you say that is like taught you about God, taught you about the character of God? Because- mm-hmm at least from my perspective, most people would not respond the way that you've responded, mm-hmm. which is 
God, where are you in this? And what can I learn about you and your character? So I guess maybe was, was there a moment where you just said, I'm going to, for lack of a better term, lean into this and try and understand what God's trying to teach me. And then what, mm. what are some of those things that you think God has revealed to you in that process? Yeah. Oh, great questions, man. Um, I mean, I think that I should say, you know, I'm seven years on in this journey and those first couple of years, I was pretty dark on God. Like it was full on crisis mode for me, you know, and I let him have it. I let him know about it. <laughs> um, I mean, I had days, <laughs> plenty of days where I was literally just curled up on the floor, just almost screaming, just being like, what a joke. What a joke, God. What is this gospel at all? I don't understand any of this, you know, doing my best to stay Christian whilst also like, you know. Um, and uh, so it, it's been a long journey. And I think I think part of it is that, well, let me go back a step. There was a moment where it all changed. It was quite a definitive moment. I was sitting in a cafe though, in those years, uh, I, I started journal, prayer journaling because I have severe, it's very difficult for me when I'm not well to think in structured sentences or to be cohesive because of the damage that my, the, the sickness does to my, my mind. Um, and so I started prayer journaling writing because it's a very good way to connect your body and your mind and lots of other things. And I was sitting there looking at the sun. It was a beautiful morning. I had, I'd go to a cafe, I'd sit with an espresso and I'd just kind of like, you know, try and get stuff out and I'd let God know about how I was feeling. I'd be honest about my feelings, but like the Psalms, I would always try and bring it back to thankfulness and gratitude. No matter how hard I tried, it would be like, God, where are you? I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm sick. I'm my kids. I can't play with my kids. You know, my poor wife, but I trust you. And I, I, I choose to trust you in this day. I just had this moment of going, I have my hands. I have my legs. I can write, I'm sitting in a cafe in one of the most beautiful countries in the world. I can't work. I can't play with my kids. I can't do any of the things I want to do. But I do have a good life. I can look out a window and I can see the sun rising. I can see the sun reflecting on the on all the windows down the road. And I thought, God, I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for this. And if this is all my life ever gets to be, just sick, staring out windows, it's still a, a beautiful life. Thank you. And in that moment, all I could say is it just felt like concrete blocks just lifted off me and I became free. I didn't become well. I still battled sickness and I still battled thoughts of anxiety and, and woefulness and sorrow and grief. But I battled them from a position of freedom, not captivity. And I think this is the thing about suffering that that we struggle to get, maybe especially in our charismatic Pentecostal circles, is we think that thanking God for bad situations means that either we're condoning suffering or we're accepting them. Um, but that's not what thankfulness and gratitude does. Thankfulness and gratitude says this doesn't define my experience of you, myself, and the world. I'm more free than that. Because like Romans says, um, God, works, um, God works for good the good for those who love them. You know, the scripture, mm -hmm. I normally kind mm -hmm. of like really way more spiritual and can do it by rote, but um, he can do that. And so I became free, not because I became better, but because I stopped allowing my sickness to define myself, my life, my theology. Um and that's when I started to, to be able to be fruitful. I started to learn love, peace, patience, joy, and self-control. I started mm. to learn gratefulness. I started to be able to minister to other people, um, not in spite of, but through the suffering. Mm. So I, th I think the biggest lesson I've learned about suffering is that, um, and, and it is, suffering's universal. We're going through it at the moment, you know. Uh, I think this last couple of years, have, have created an inescapable world of suffering for people. You can't get away from COVID. You know, everyone wants to talk about it or the mandates or the government or the, you know, the war on Ukraine. Um, suffering is inevitable. Uh, but I think in the church, we've lost the ability to become victorious through suffering 
um, rather than by apart from it or removing it. And I think that was always the danger in my sort of charismatic Pentecostal background was I've got to overcome this. I've got to push through. I've got to, and sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. Um, but sometimes the overcoming and pushing through doesn't come from defeating the thing. It actually comes from walking through it in Christ. Um, and that there's, there's a subtle difference that changes everything. For me, yeah. if that makes sense. Agreed. It makes all the sense in the world, brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's Pentecostal to do that. And I think that's that's something that I've had to really rise up into over the years is that when you start talking about suffering, people think, oh, man, you're anti-charismatic. You're becoming sort of a fatalist. Um, and I think that what I've had to learn is actually Pentecostalism is the spirit of God inhabiting a broken human. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like at its essence, we're looking at a, a a broken community of God, some of which denied Jesus only a month before. The spirit mm-hmm. fills them and the spirit doesn't suddenly make Peter a perfect person. It's not that long before he's completely messing up the New Testament church on a level that is just mind-blowing to me. Um, but what it mm-hmm. does do is it empowers them their behavior through suffering uh, through tragedy, mm-hmm. difficulty, persecution, and through getting things wrong. And I think that's a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about um, prayer for for a second. So you sort of mentioned earlier that, you know, going into the room, shutting the door and just going after it with God in that true, like Pentecostal fashion wasn't always, wasn't always a strength of yours. Um, mm-hmm. I think both of us would have grown up in seeing that as what the, at least for me, I can't speak that for you, prayer. but but yeah. a lot of what mm-hmm. prayer was, right? And and I still love me some going to war, Pentecostal yeah. prayer, you know. Um, me too. But yeah, but uh, you know, I remember a few years ago, I was just really struggling with uh, anxiety and you know some mental health stuff, and I started reading some of these more sort of contemplative, like Desert Father kind of mystical people that. Um, First of all, I didn't even really knew existed, right? But it was just opened up to this kind of new sort of contemplative aspect to prayer. And I'm loving trying to learn how both and can kind of like be at work in my life and actually have found a new love for prayer in that more just quiet contemplative um, space. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking the other day, uh, we sort of talked about how in my beginnings of that, I like kind of thought I was doing something wrong, like my Pentecostal roots were telling me like this is passive um you're not getting anything done yeah you're not getting anything done you know whatever that might Mm be and and i don't know talk to me about about that like those maybe two different kinds of prayer and and how that Mm -hmm. sort of like works itself out in your life and in your time with with god yeah i mean i can so relate to your experience um man about oh am i am i you know am i leaving the team, <laughs> you know, am I doing something wrong? Yeah. Um, it feels so right. And yet it feels so contrary to everything I've been taught, you know? Um, but I mean, I would say at the start that I do believe that there is an undeniable move of God toward abiding prayer, or we might call it contemplative prayer, but historically the church has just called it prayer. Like they haven't, it's not necessarily contemplative in nature. Um, specifically, but I think there is a historical move of the spirit bringing people into that. I think it's a prophetic thing. Um, and I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of that because I think sometimes we can get think, Oh, this is just the latest thing or whatever. Um, but across denominations, across countries and communities, most of what I hear is people finding it, not because it's presented to them, but because it just comes alive in them through a particular phase in their life. And I think that's exciting. Um, but, yeah, these, these two worlds, I think that, um, I mean, in reality, they're not two worlds, but culturally right. we've, been, we've been taught they have been. So it's one of those dichotomies that, um, that we wrestle with, and, and that's real because we're humans. We're indoctrinated and encultured with ways of thinking about the world. And I think one of those ways that we've been taught is, well, you got these Roman Catholics and these like really passive, non-missional, boring guys who pray in silence and solitude, and it's over there. It's detached. It's it's not alive. It's not energetic. They generally wear kind of like 
knit sweaters mm. and it's kind of mm-hmm. balding on the top and whatever. And over here, you've mm-hmm. got passionate, <laughs> exciting millennials with their energy and their fervor and they're doing miracles and getting stuff done. I know which one I want to be with. Um, and part of that is simply the time that we're born. Um, and then part of that is also, I think, a an indictment on those two communities, basically um, ostracizing each other unnecessarily out of maybe misunderstanding or fear. So I, I think that when it comes to contemplative prayer or when it comes to praying, um, a, a picture that God showed me once to make sense of it was, if imagine God is a river. God is a river flowing through life, the world, downstream, whatever. Um, he's the spirit. He's, he's alive. He's rushing. He's going in a direction, and that direction is the consummation of all things. It's heaven and earth here in a beautiful world. And through Christ, we're invited to step into that river, to pray, to commune with him. Now, there's two ways to engage. One way is you can just waltz in, lie on your back, arms out, stare up at the sky and let yourself be carried by the water. And that's probably what I would consider contemplative prayer or abiding prayer or just sitting with God. It's just simply the water is taking you. Um, it's not enact, It's not inactive because you're, you're actively pacifying yourself before the living God. You're yielding to God. You're saying, I want to yield my existence to your existence. And in doing that, that is generally the kind of prayer in which we most experience senses of love, what the saints call union with God, um, senses of peace and the fruitfulness of Christ. It's abiding prayer. However, we also live in a world, and so on this river there are rocks and eddies, there are corners to turn, there's stuff to navigate. And so sometimes the right thing to do is actually to just sit up in a canoe and start paddling your way through. Now, Mm -hmm. even in that kind of prayer, the river is still carrying you. And that kind of prayer, I might say, is intercession and petition. So that's the kind of prayer where we're, we're looking at the river and say, Father, there's this thing here. We need you to move on this thing. We need transformation. Mm-hmm. We need healing. We need activation. Um, or, or intercession, we're moving with the Spirit and we're groaning with Him and we're, we're in a relationship. We're in a dance with God. He's leading. We're responding. But in both situations, we are still in the river, uh, yielding to the river, being led by and held by the river. And it's a, it's a little bit crass, but... I think I think that these forms of prayer, the getting in a room and praying and interceding and speaking in tongues and pounding it out, it's not adverse to abiding and contemplating. It's these two hands of prayer that we have to hold well if we are to be a whole generation, which is we need to be an interceding, petitioning people. We see that all through the New Testament. Um, and yet Jesus said it was in, in abiding in him and being seated in him um, that is our ultimate call. And so I would say that contemplative prayer is much like being in love with your wife. Um, it's in, it's like, you know, being in marriage. It's, you know, it's physical intimacy. It's emotional intimacy. Uh, and yet, even in a marriage, we still have to pay the bills, get stuff done. And in a marriage, we partner in our church, in the society, in the world to do good. And these two things aren't, Two different things, they're exactly the same. One comes out of the other. Uh, I would say part of the biggest issue with prayer in our generation is that we've done so much canoeing, so much paddling, and not enough seating in God that we've worn ourselves out, become tired and burnt out and cynical, uh, and that the Holy Spirit's invitation back to abiding prayer is so that we can actually return to those things energized and with greater passion and faith. So um, I don't know if that makes sense. It could be also... It makes amazing sense. I love that analogy. It could be also a contextual thing, right? Like, because oftentimes, uh, at least this is what what kind of how it comes together in my mind. Like when we talk about how we weren't taught the more f- like floating type of, you know, down the river, the contemplative prayer. I would say that uh, it might just be that we were never taught specific kinds of prayer in the first place. Prayers are something that we've caught. Mm-hmm. And the way yeah, you catch things is be by being around other people. Mm-hmm. And when you're around other people, you're in an assembly environment. You're mm-hmm. in, you're of one accord. Right. And so the prayer does tend mm-hmm. to be more 
Mm -hmm. uh, canoeing. It's mm -hmm. like, we are in mm -hmm. one accord about this thing. We're going to pray mm -hmm. for this thing. Mm -hmm. And the contemplative type of prayer, that's more silence and solitude. That's being alone. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So you're, if someone even did have that practice in their life, right. which I know people who do have that practice in their life that are of a previous generation or two before us, but I've never been with them while they've right. done that. So mm -hmm. I never caught that from mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I only ever watched them pray in a Pentecostal sense right. or in a, uh, in a more aggressive canoeing sense. Yep. And so it's, it's, it probably has a little bit to do with that as well. It's just whatever context you find mm -hmm. yourself in. I wanted to make a quick little book recommendation by a, an author named Gerald Sitzer. Uh, he has a book called Water from a Deep Well. And he looks at, I think, seven or eight different mm -hmm. moments in mm -hmm. church history mm -hmm. um, and does a really great job of looking at the beautiful things that each of these movements uh, contributed to the overall Christian faith. Um, certainly cool. this, uh, Desert Fathers stuff in there as well. And if people are having trouble kind of being ecumenical about this and bringing these worlds together, um, we absolutely should. And that's a, maybe mm -hmm. a helpful yeah. book for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's, that's just great, such man. a good point that you, yeah, well, I, I just, I think that such a good point that you bring up, right? Cause like I, all of the, the incredible men who have pastored to, pastored me that I've looked up to over the years, you know, they always have these stories of these moments where God has mm -hmm. spoken to them mm -hmm. or this encounter that they've had. And they'll always offhand, like, like make this offhand reference of like, yeah, I'd been away for three or four days fasting and praying, right. or I was, you know, yeah. and I think just in my own, well, I've always seen them pray this way. So, mm -hmm. but I guess even logically thinking about like, well, for three days, you weren't like just in a room pacing back and forth, speaking in tongues at the top of your lungs, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think that's such a good, mm -hmm. such a good point. It's like, it is a lot of just what we've, what we've seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by, um, I think this is a statement from you, Strong, uh, mm -hmm. the future of church is prayer. Yeah. Um, this is, we're going to enter the realm now where I'm going to start making bold statements. <laughs> so I, I don't apologize in advance. Great. I just want to advance. Um, <laughs> okay. For, for a number of reasons. One, the entire point of human existence is communion with God. There is no other realm. I mean, if you want to say, what is the meaning of life? Jesus answered it very simply to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. In other words, with every single aspect of your existence, love God. And then secondly, to allow that love to move out towards every other, which includes even your enemies. Um, and so the point of life is to love God. How do we love God? Well, how do you love anybody? You spend time with them, enjoying them. I think that over the last few hundreds of years uh, in our missional fervor, which is amazing. So this is not a critique in the slightest. Um, we have we have missionalized the gospel um, in a way that has sort of accidentally emptied out some of this core purpose of human existence. Not intentionally. I just think we've been so mm -hmm. ambitious and so driven, which again is magnificent, not a critique. I am all about mission. I spent most of my life doing it. Um, and so I think, and, and in doing that sort of came out of a gospel that said um, the gospel, like we are called to get people saved, right? So we use the language, I got saved. Saved is a very final once off kind of statement. And we go, well, now that I'm saved, what do I do? And we generally say, well, you go and get other people saved uh, because what we need to do is get as many people saved as we can. Not, that's not wrong. But what it does is it reduces the Christian life to the actions of doing. Um, I'm saved so that, like, what do I do for the rest of my life? Well, I go and do stuff. I've got to keep doing stuff. I've got to keep saving other people. And, you know, otherwise I'll, I might go to the wrong place when I die. Um but that's not actually the gospel. The gospel is about reconciliation between humanity and God. The gospel isn't Jesus died for your sins so that you could go and tell other people that Jesus died for their sins. The gospel is that Jesus came and died for us on the cross and resurrected so that we could be fully reconciled to relationship with him. So, if, if we are to see that as the gospel, then what do we do for the rest of our lives since we get saved in that moment? 
is actually our primary goal is to be friends with God. Uh, and mm-hmm. everything else flows from that. The whole gospel, remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart is the basic you know, overview of the entire scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. We, we are follow Jesus to become friends with God. And as we become friends with God, we become friends with the world. If we are to do that, I think we are going to have to fundamentally restructure the way that our church communities operate because our church communities are essentially oriented around mission primarily, um, which is great. Again, not a problem. We shouldn't get rid of that. Somehow we have to bring that friendship focus back in in a tangible way. What we're talking about in all of that is prayer because prayer is just a word we use to label the whole realm of engagement with God, um, with our soul, our mind, spirit, being. So when I say I believe the future of the church is prayer, I believe it's two things. It's a recentering back on the actual main priority of the gospel, which is reconciliation, which is friendship. Um, and then secondly, it's a re-engagement in prayer pri- as the primary form of mission to the world because we've become very good at creating strategies and programs, very good at planting churches, very good at growing churches, running podcasts and doing amazing marketing campaigns. What we're not good at is being loving, kind, patient, gentle, and all of the fruits of the Spirit. We have to ask ourselves, why can we not think of that many Christians that when we hang out with, we say they feel like Jesus? not just because they're smart or because they're doing miracles or because they're passionate, but because they're more kind, more gentle, more loving, and more joyful than anybody else. The answer to that question is because we're not praying, because we're not spending time in abiding prayer where the fruit of the vine grows up out of us. Um, Mm -hmm. And until we do that, we can't be truly missional to the world. So I think that the future of the church is prayer because prayer has always been the centerpiece of the church but we've accidentally trumped it with activity in this last number of years as we've really we've prioritised church growth, we've prioritised church planting, um, we've, we've sucked our pastors dry of life, uh, and then when you've got empty pastors pastoring people, um, you know, you, you get prayerlessness gets passed on, and I'm, that's not a judgment mm-hmm. on pastors. I actually mm-hmm. think that we've created that consumer culture that's really hurt our, our leadership. So I don't know if that was too convoluted, but um, I, it's not just, it's for me, it's not prayers the focus of the church as in 24-7 prayer. I love 24-7 prayer. Mm-hmm. What I'm actually talking about is a restoration of friendship between each individual and the church as a whole to God, and then the way that is going to manifestly transform the world um, in a response mm-hmm. from that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I think, in my view, I look at it um, maybe even more broadly than what the term prayer encapsulates. And I think, I think of things like like liturgy, right? So, let me see if I can sort this out in my head. When you when you have an emphasis on, let's say, maybe like a seeker culture in a church for the sake mm-hmm. of growth and reaching people, the the casualty of that is going to be um, discipleship on some level, I, I think. Unless mm. a church is so good at taking people from a seeker-sensitive experience on a Sunday into a more, uh, let's call it a, maybe a confronting experience, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. But it can be hard to have people take those steps. And I think bringing some of the discipleship into Sunday mm-hmm. is a really important aspect of this. I mean, this is what I understand a huge benefit to being more thoughtful about liturgy in terms of the behaviors that you get people to practice in a gathering, mm-hmm. whether they know it or not, are actually discipling them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to your point, Strawn, producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in them. So for example... Mm-hmm. If, if we remove the act of repentance out of our church gatherings wholesale because asking somebody to repent is a little bit too confronting, mm-hmm. then uh, you, you are going to rob them of the growth and the maturity that Christ wants to form in them um, mm-hmm. because repentance is, is a 
key. Mm-hmm. Abiding in Christ, Jesus says that in the context of the Last Supper, taking communion mm-hmm. is something that mm-hmm. um, a lot of churches don't do on a regular basis. I mean, so I remember growing up in church and we did it every week. And then there was mm-hmm. some point where we like kind of just stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of the, the quote tradition that I inherited is mm-hmm. we don't really do communion very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've uh, journeyed back from that and gone, no, we need to do this much more regularly because that's for that's formational cool. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I would just say that as kind of a compliment to what you're saying in the sense that, yeah, um, yeah I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, man. I mean, I think when I think of prayer, the metaphors that I think of, um, I think two metaphors, I think of a banquet, you know, if you go out to big banquet for dinner, you generally got all the things, right? You got some wine, you got some juice, maybe some beer, you got some bread, some dips, you have an entree, you got your main, your dessert, you got this. The thing that makes a banquet such a celebration is the diversity. You know, obviously not any alcohol because we're Christians, so it's more juicy stuff. But, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the, the thing that makes a banquet is its diversity. If we're going to the gym and we want to work, be a whole person, if you just do upper body workout all the time, you get chicken legs, right? It's what we call it in New Zealand, chicken legs when someone's at the beach. <laughs> they take off their shirt and they're ripped up top, yeah. but there's clearly no effort because everyone hates mm-hmm. leg days. Yeah. So I, I see prayer and these forms of prayer from contemplative to intercessory to liturgy to journaling to fasting. You know, I've started doing the sign of the cross now every time I start to pray, body prayer, Pentecostal prayer. This is all part of the critical makeup of an entire life mm-hmm. body of prayer mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and when you start to see it that way it starts to get harder to see where prayer ends and anything else begins and i think that's the point and i love what you're saying because liturgy is a really helpful transit transitionary sort of practice for people for them to see that because it engages their mind their mouth and their body and their intellect and and it's submissive and that teach us some, mm-hmm. teaches us something um, and, and, and communion, I mean, I could, we could just talk for an hour on communion. I'm so passionate about it in terms of Eucharist and what that, what I think, how that's going to reshape charismatic communities or Pentecostal communities. But I think all of these things help pull us again towards discipleship to be, to formation as people of affection for God. And that's, I think that's what we're lacking a little bit is those on-ramps that are, you like you say, you know, we just, we just catch what we, we catch. Um, mm-hmm. so we need to think strongly about how do we put more lines out for people to catch d- diversity mm-hmm. in the church. Um, and mm-hmm. I love what you're saying about thinking differently about prayer. I think it's crucial. Just mm-hmm. so good. It's really it's good. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Jesus said, if you don't abide in me, <laughs> you will produce nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe give us just in closing, uh, I know you said you could talk for an hour about it, but maybe just give us a few minutes um, on communion. Yeah, so um, I, I think that the way through this for me, when I think about um, when I think about my Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds, um, and I know those kind of two different things, but the this sort of progressionary and I think how do I reconnect with the historic church how do I earth my um, how do I earth my ecstatic desire for God my heavenly desire for experience in an ordinary everyday reality of my life and I think I think when I think about Pentecostalism and my experience of it that's one of the biggest challenges how do we take these amazing Sunday mornings with the bands and the music and the you know and then land it in the ordinary because a lot of people in, in, in strongly Pentecostal charismatic communities will say things like, oh, they hear from God, but I don't hear from God. Or, I'm not a very spiritual mm-hmm. person. Or they feel a bit left out um, because they're assuming everybody's experiencing something that they're not. So my question is how do we, how do we close that gap, that dualism essentially of like God's over there but life's over here? Uh, and for me, I find that and have experienced that in the Eucharist. So Historically, from the very, very earliest theologians and church practitioners, the early church believed that when the bread and wine was blessed, 
that it became the real presence of God, um, that it became mm. the body and the blood of Jesus. It wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't a sign. It was an actual substantial change of some kind. Now, there's a difference between that and transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is generally the desire to try and mechanize that understanding. The early church kind of just essentially said, we don't know how, we just know that that's what what it is. It's called the doctrine of real presence. And the doctrine of real presence was um, held by the church and has been held by the church for 2,000 years. It's only a couple of outlier denominations since the Protestant Reformation. By the way, even... Martin Luther and those early Protestant um, theologians, they believed this as well, real presence. Uh, and so the reason this is important is because what we're saying is that in the bread and wine, when it's blessed, like Christ, it is 100% bread and wine, but mm. it is also somehow mm. 100% God. And we don't know the mystery, but we know that mm. when we eat it, we are eating and drinking God um, mm-hmm. ourselves. And that seems important based on the teaching of Jesus and the church throughout time. Mm-hmm. A little bit strange. Just to pause we'll put that really in. quick. Yeah. Is, is that, so is that, is that consubstantiation? Like, is that what you're effectively describing there? Cause when I read like reformed theologians on this, it sounds a lot like that where it is bread and wine, but it's also yeah. a whole lot more than a symbol. And somehow yeah. Jesus is present with the elements. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to put it. Um, right. I, I prefer, not, yeah, because. Yeah, and consubstantiation anyways. might not be the right term. I don't know, but it, it sounds like that. I'm not sure either. I, I I make a deliberate point of not remembering big theological words when I'm when I'm studying <laughs> yeah. things. Um, I, so I think that's a great goal. Image. <laughs> yeah. So we have this thing. Jesus said, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Take my body and my blood. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot partake in me. This is a sacrament. This is a mystery of the church. Now, in the Orthodox and Catholic and Anglican tradition, um, they believe that it literally sustains the church, that the church Mm -hmm. is an entire life is centered around the sacrament of Eucharist, that Mm -hmm. the degree to which she doesn't take it, she's malnourished and dehydrated, the degree to which she takes it, she is participating in the very real life of Jesus. Now, this sounds like high theology, but here's where it lands. In the Eucharist, we see what it looks like for heaven to invade earth. We get a sign, a a sacrament that becomes a metaphor that says, when I invade your life, Jake, When I invade your life, Mike, when I saturate you with my presence and involve myself in your world, it looks like this. Now, that's incredibly freeing for me because it means that even when I'm doing the dishes and I'm losing it at my kids over something ridiculous or I'm having to do something (laughs) mundane that doesn't feel, quote, unquote, spiritual, the Eucharist is saying to me, no, Strawn, open your eyes. This Mm -hmm. world is saturated with my presence to the degree to which you Mm -hmm. bless and invite my spirit to be so. That's comforting. Um, And so I can look at my life and say, this is my job. My job as a priest in the household of God is to take this ordinary stuff and to continually invite God's presence to transform it into something special and miraculous. And so it gives, I think, our charismatic experiences a place to land. But on the other side, it gives those who might say that life isn't mystical, that life isn't sacred or spiritual, it confronts them and says, no, just walking through life, not asking God to bless and to fill and to sanctify isn't making stuff holy. We must ask for, every time we take Eucharist, it's like a mini Pentecost and we're saying, God, we need your spirit to touch these things of our lives or they will Mm -hmm. die. You know, bread and wine on its own, we will die if we drink that. But the Eucharist, when we, when we drink, eat and drink it, we live forever. And now, now we need to challenge these notions of ordinary, oh, we just got to like move on with life as, you know, healings in the past and, and prophecies in the past. The Eucharist demands us to refuse that. To say regardless mm. of what our eyes tell us, we must invite the Holy Spirit to actively participate in the world. And so I think that as we 
not just gather around Eucharist weekly in our charismatic communities, but also teach this this incarnational doctrine, this incarnational theology, we kind of hopefully challenge both ends of the community and say, look, if you're looking on and you feel left behind, don't worry, fear not, because this bread and wine looks just as ordinary as the rest of us. Mm-hmm. God is with mm-hmm. you. You're saturated. You are full of his presence. Um, but don't accept that either. We must continue to keep asking to see what God sees, this this real presence of God in our life and to reach out for that ecstatic place. And and I don't see any reason why um, we can't pray that when people take, you know, Eucharist, that they are physically healed on the spot, not by a preacher with his hand on them, but by the blessed sacrament. There's no reason why, you know, the presence of God can't be manifest through Eucharist. We've just never asked for it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I actually had this, are we okay for time? Can I just say one more yeah, thing? Yeah, we're, we're yeah. great. I told, you I'd, I told you I'd take an hour, and now I'm whipping out a book. Um, <laughs> there's this beautiful quote I've, I've been kind of reading about. This book's called The Pentecostal Holiness Tradition by Vincent Sinan, and um, he's kind of mapping how from mapping Pentecostalism from Methodism right through to um, Azusa and then beyond into the charismatic movements. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, to note, no denominational community in the world embraced the Pentecostal movement faster and with more fervor than the Catholics. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church embraced Pentecostalism from the Pope down like that, and it transformed their community. And by the way, it made them more sacramental, not less. Mm-hmm. They, they mm-hmm. got more veneration of mm-hmm. the saints and of Mary, not less, which is interesting. Um, But there's this interesting kind of last chapter of the book talks about the future and what theologians were saying about Pentecostalism in the 90s and 80s. Um, Pentecostalism is, if I understand this book correctly, it's basically claiming, and it has some studies to show, actually prints the numbers, Pentecostalism is basically the fastest growing ideological movement in history of any Mm -hmm. movement. Uh, Mm -hmm. Rapid, it's the second largest denomination in the world. And so he talks about what the future looks like because when Pentecostalism started in Azusa Street, most people were looking at it going, this is crazy and weird, we don't welcome it. But by the time you get to the 60s, the Catholic Church is embracing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then you get first, second, third wave charismatic movements right through to the 70s and 80s, which were basically saying, we're not Pentecostals, but, man, we love the Holy Spirit, we want all the Mm -hmm. gifts. Mm-hmm. So in that context, uh, a miss, missiologist, Leslie Newbegin, who's just a great, really great thinker and lots of people have, are really redigging his wells at the moment, he wrote a book called The Household of God. I don't know if you guys, do you guys know that book? It's sort don't. Of, anyways. It, I know he's him, basically saying it. the future of the church is in these three streams. And a lot of theologians were saying this in the 90s. The Catholic church with its communal sacramentality, the Protestant church where it's focused on the word of God and the Pentecostal church and the word of the spirit. And I just this quote in the book, uh, the writer says, according to Newbegin, the first was the Catholic tradition. He's talking about these three streams of one river, uh, which emphasized continuity, orthodoxy, and the importance of the sacraments to the life of the church. The Protestant tradition, on the other hand, emphasized the centrality of the scriptures and the importance of the proclaimed word of God. The Pentecostals added to these first two historic expressions of the faith an emphasis on the present action of the Spirit in the church through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So if we have these three categories, Catholicism of orthodoxy and sacramentality, you've got Protestantism, which is Bible, 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 and then you've got (laughs) Pentecostalism, which is Holy Spirit and the gifts, the, the, the goal or the prediction for the 21st century is to see these three streams become one mm-hmm. river. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think at the moment, you look at Pentecostalism and you can say very strong embrace of the word, you know, very strong conservative values mm-hmm. around the word, uh, very mm-hmm. passionate, lots of value on preaching, um, but yet still a high suspicion of Catholicism and mm-hmm. of sacred rites and of things like that. So the question is, what of the sacramental life can we start to pull into our Pentecostal charismatic communities 
to start transforming us and welcoming orthodoxy back into some of the wild west of the charismatic world, right? Um, <laughs> and, and I think beginning with Eucharist, I love what you said, Mike, around confession. You know, bringing confession back in is is powerful, and I think that's very yeah. at the heart of Pentecostalism anyway, repentance. Um, mm-hmm. But I think bringing in things like Eucharist and liturgy isn't saying we are now becoming non-Pentecostal. I think it's our way of saying we're becoming more Pentecostal. We're embracing more of the Holy Spirit, more of what God's done in history. And so teaching sacramentality and this idea of um, the sacramental vision of Eucharist, in other words, that the whole world is a is a table and we are called to bless it like we are Eucharist. I think that is going to land the spirituality of our charismatic Pentecostal communities in a very historical and powerful movement would be unstoppable. Gifts of the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, manifestations of God, and a sacramental view. I mean, I just it makes me so excited to think that there could be a church someday <laughs> like that. But I think it, it starts by looking at, I think, looking at a map like that and saying, this isn't about changing the church. It's about um, deepening you know, deepening the church. Catholicism mm-hmm. needs to welcome Pentecostalism. Protestantism needs to welcome Catholicism and, and so on and so forth. And I think the Eucharist is is our entry point because it's our, our yeah. one great unifying principle, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that a whole lot. I mean, you might just say that those uh, three things would just be becoming more biblical um, because it's certainly all all there in the scripture. I think of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word uh, participation is uh, the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. Mm. So when we take yeah. the Eucharist, we are literally fellowshipping <clears throat> with Christ and together yeah. in one spirit. Um, yeah. And I don't know about you, but when the, when the spirit of God is present, that's when miracles can happen. That's when demonstrations yeah. of power mm-hmm. can manifest. And even Paul yeah. says, you know, he goes on to talk about when they were abusing it. He's like, this is why some of you guys are dying is because you suck at communion. <laughs> you're doing yeah. it wrong and you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So certainly Paul had a high mm. view of spirituality around um, mm. the elements. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is amazing and, and quite, it, it, really, um, it really pushes against our materialism our society mm-hmm. with, with such this flat materialism that we believe we only see the world as physical and then spiritual, you know, the spiritual stuff of the physical is here. We really struggle to embed the kingdom of heaven upon the physical nature of the world. Um, and I think that it, we need to bridge that. And I, I get excited when I think about Pentecostalism reaching into that and claiming that space and leading that way. Uh, I just kind of, it just feels unstoppable to me. It's very, very exciting. And I've, I've only found that the more orthodox I've become in my theology, studying the saints and looking back, the, the more that sort of Pentecostal charismatic spirit has risen in me. Mm. Um, it hasn't mm. been a, it hasn't been a payoff. I haven't lost one to the other. I feel, uh, in fact, those years that I told you about where I was becoming very contemplative in my prayer life, I'd go to bed and I'd dream seven, eight, nine, ten times a night. Sometimes people would just come and appear to me in, in a dream, in physical form, and just say to me, Strawn, this is what I want you to say, or this is what it was so literal. And yet at the same wow. time during the day, I'm spending time in silence and solitude and studying the saints and becoming orthodox. And for me, those two things have never been at the cost of one another. Uh, and I, I, I get excited about thinking as the church journeys and journeys to bring these together. Just that the the how uh, what's the word um, how reenchanted faith will become mm-hmm. to us again, mm-hmm. um, and how exciting mm-hmm. it will be just to be alive in God mm-hmm. in the world and what that might mean mm-hmm. in it you know energetically and vitally for uh, mm-hmm. society and creation. What a vision! Mm-hmm. I love that, and I guess just maybe as one closing thought for me, and then I'll give you the final word would be that as a church endeavors to embrace that which it hasn't embraced, it will also mean that it must shed things that it has previously embraced. So whether you're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're a, a Protestant shedding some bad theology or you're a Catholic shedding some bad theology uh, and those things manifest in different ways. That's, mm-hmm. that's part of the journey mm-hmm. um, in, mm-hmm. in an effort to become more biblical and ultimately more mm-hmm. effective as a church. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. 
It's good, man. Mm-hmm. Strong, you're the man. Yeah. Thank you so you much. You guys are the mans. Oh, thanks so much <laughs> for having me on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. And I just, I've been so excited about this all week, man, just because I, I, this conversation lights me up and it's a real mm-hmm. pleasure to be able to just share it with you guys. And, you know, I got to spend some time with Jake last week and it just really brought me so much hope and energy for the church. And I, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There's a lot of division. There's a lot of confusion, mm-hmm. a lot of disorientation, a lot of walking away, and it's heartbreaking. Um, mm-hmm. And yet the spirit is doing something that I think we'll talk about for, for many decades to come. And it's exciting to try and name that in some shape, even if it's mm. a tiny piece of naming it. Uh, so I'm really grateful to be able to have this conversation with you guys, to be invited to the space and yeah, for your hearts. So thank you. Oh, man. No, thank you. Thank you for your time. We'll definitely love to have you back on and continue the conversation at some point. For sure. Um, thank you so much, man. Have an amazing rest of the day. 